This is KSPD Santa Cruz 9.7 FM. I'm Deanna Riley. This is the Hive Poetry Collective. Today, I'm here with Denise Duhamel. Welcome, Denise. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. I am so thrilled to have you because I have long been a fan. I'm going to jump right in with your bio. Denise Duhamel's most recent books of poetry are Second Story from Pittsburgh, 2021 and Scald and Blowout was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. A proponent of collaboration, she and Maureen Seaton have co-authored five collections, the most recent of which is Caprice, Collaborations Collected, Uncollected, and New from Civil Rivalry Press. Her nonfiction publications include The Unrhymables, Collaborations in Prose with Julie Marie Wade from Noctuary Press. And she is a recipient of fellowships from the Guggenheim and the National Endowment for the Arts. She is Distinguished University Professor in the MFA program at Florida International University in Miami. So once again, Thank you for buzzing into the hive, Denise. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Um, so I love that you work with other poets on poems. Me too. It's one of the greatest blessings of my life. It's so much fun. So you'll like send a line or two and then they respond with a line. Correct. So, um, and, and even beyond that, we... Maureen Seaton and I started writing in the late 80s, maybe 1990, finishing our first poem. So there was no way to like send lines back and forth because there was no internet or there was internet. We certainly didn't have it. <laughs> and so we would leave our lines maybe on each other's answering machines or sometimes we'd meet in person to do it. And we played a lot of exquisite corpse. And that's when you fold the paper so that you only see half of each other's lines, et cetera, et cetera. And so, yeah, we've been doing that for, I guess, three decades now. And it's just been wonderful. So you find that kind of triggers your poet brain? Oh, yeah. It's like having a prompt constantly. Because if you're working, um, well, except for the person who writes the first line. But but once you write the first line and you um, turn it over to your partner or partners, you can, you know, have more than one but it's usually just Maureen and myself going back and forth no matter what I do no matter how crazy the line break is no matter how like and then Maureen will come up with something in two seconds and I'm the same way it's like it feeds it feeds the work it's a lot of fun so are you always doing that you always have one going um well you know, life gets in the way, right? So Maureen's had some health challenges or I'll get really busy at school or something, you know, so it's not like every day, but yeah, um, pretty much. I mean, like, yeah, once we're in it, it's really hard to stop too. It's really fun. What so an we'll amazing, have to say, you know, an amazing way to have a friendship. Oh, it's, it's brilliant. It's really, um, I mean, collaboration I know is not for everybody and some people would, you know, not want to do it. And that's fine too. But Maureen and I are so simpatico that it, it's been just been such a joy, you know, really fun. Okay. I think I'm going to start doing that. 
I think it's a yes. And there's really good books. I can yes, there's good books on there's one called um the surrealism. Wait. The book up uh, it's by Shambhala Press and it's has surrealism games or something in the title. It's a little book and it, it has a whole bunch of games that you can play, poetry games. Well, all you have to do is Google Google Shambhala Press and put surrealism and it'll probably yes. I think it's the book of surrealist games now that I'm saying okay. it over and over. It's, I'll, it's, I'll try to put that in the show notes. Yeah, it's really fun if you are inclined to collaborate. I'd like to be more collaborative. Okay, yeah. let's jump into a poem of yours. And this is a new one. Is It's mm -hmm. not even published, right? This is just one that you... Well, yes, it just was published a few days ago on Dustin Brookshire's Limpfrist. So he's doing a resistance, uh, a special issue on resistance given the Dobbs decision. So um, yeah, I... Yeah, here we go. <laughs> here we go. Okay, yeah, so this is plug, one of my newest poems, though. Yes. A plug for Limp Wrist. Uh, it's oh, Limp Wrist is fabulous. It really is. And get, it gets all these great people in it. Okay, so let's um, um, listen to Daycare. Okay, great. Um, this poem is called Daycare, and it has an unlikely epigraph, actually, from Howard Stern, who sat on his show June 24th, 2022, all unwanted children should be allowed to live at the Supreme Court building. Daycare. Let Samuel Alito burp and feed them. Let Clarence Thomas roll on the floor with a rattle and blocks. Let Neil Gorsuch change their diapers. Let Brat Kavanaugh worry about each one getting shot as he drops them off at the school bus stop. Let Amy Coney Barrett start their college funds. Let the five justices tear out their hair as each child throws a tantrum. Let them lose sleep when the kids go through puberty, screaming, I hate you. I never asked to be born. Screaming, I hate you. I never asked to be born. Mic drop ending. Thank so, you. So as you were writing this, how did you decide, was there a system? to how you decide which judge was going to do which activity? Oh, I just thought, you know, kind of, kind of. Um, I was the maddest at Alito and Clarence Thomas, so I made him get on the floor with the rattling blocks. I'm like, oh, that's going to hurt his back. I mean, I guess I did um, he'll let Neil Gorsuch change the diapers. I, Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I kind of left... Amy Coney Barrett off the hook with the college funds thing. But yeah, I was just so angry. And I think sometimes, well, I'm sure as half of the country, more than half of the country was furious. And I think sometimes um, humor, a weird, like a weird kind of humor, admittedly, was just one way to go at it. And even when Howard Stern uh, said this quote, he was not saying it as a joke. He was like, they should all go to the Supreme Court building. Well, well, he was really upset. And then I, you know, I just thought that's kind of hilarious. Like I just pictured all these like toddlers running around, you know, so yeah, yeah. So um, often when things are happening in the world, especially like the Dobbs decision, mm -hmm. that it's kind of unimaginable. I, I never thought that would happen. Maybe that was naive. Well, and neo-fascism and 
climate change, just these overwhelming, big, scary events in the world. How are you not just overwhelmed by them? I know that you write a lot of political poetry and you're really able to grapple with it. I find that so difficult to do. What What's your secret? Um, I'm overwhelmed. I am overwhelmed by it, honestly. And it you know keeps me up at night all the time. And I moved to Florida in the year 2000, bought some an apartment, a little, you know, little tiny, they call them, you know, boxes on the beach. Cause I thought Gore's going to be um, president and he's going to take care of this shit. You know, he's going to take care of everything. Um, he's going to clean up the environment. And then here we are 22 years later um, and it's worse than ever, you know, and just the same thing. I had a friend who is a lawyer who told me, they can't overturn Roe v. Wade. It's the most brilliant piece of law. You know, the way it's written is like, don't worry, it's foolproof. But of course, these idiots, they, it wasn't even law the way they described it. You know, it was just like, this was a bad decision. Well, it was just a screed of, it wasn't even legalese. It was just, it's, it, we're living in really crazy times. So I think the crazier it gets, the more I feel the need to speak up, even though I know poetry is not running for a president or anything like that, but I just feel the need to respond. Well, you did use humor and you used form. I mean, you have mm -hmm. the repetition of the imperative uh, let, the yeah. I mean, So you used a lot of traditional, it's, it's not a sonnet, is it? No, no, it's just, yeah, it's just a list poem pretty much. It's close, but you do use some very traditional mm -hmm. poetic form to grapple with something really huge. And if you think of poetry as an argument, you know, it's like an argument with the self a lot of times, but it's, it's persuasive, whether you're wooing someone in a love poem or whatever it is, it is a persuasive art. So I think while many don't feel comfortable with political poetry and don't want any part of it which is fine um for those of us who do it's it's it's, it's another way to look at the world like kind of coming in sideways mm -hmm. yeah i mean um, you just basically use your imagination and take it to the limit right exactly when i heard that quote from howard stern i was like oh yeah that's kind of hilarious all right, let's listen to another one. How about two more purses? And it's after, you say it's after Gertrude Stein. What poem by Gertrude Stein or statement by Gertrude Stein is this after? The purse. Oh, so it's she, purse? Yeah, so she has all these, you know, purse, cup. She has poems about domestic spaces. And um, this, I have an epigraph here also. Um, and it's by... Gertrude Stein, who wrote, a purse was not green, it was not straw color, it was hardly seen, and it had a long use in the chain. The chain was never missing, it was not misplaced, it showed that it was open, that is all that it showed. Mm. Right, it's really interesting, right? So I am not at all like Gertrude Stein, but I love this quote so much. Um, well, it makes more sense than other stuff. Right. I think so. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I had read somewhere, I'm uh, 
a big lover of like dream dictionaries and dream analysis and so forth. And when you dream of a purse, you're dreaming of your mother's womb or your own womb. Cause it's like a feminine enclosed space. And so that kind of informed the poem too. Okay, let's hear it. All right, two more purses. When my mother passed, I emptied her white purse, tissue pack and reading glasses, coupons and a dress book. I once lived in the purse inside her, my first pink comb, the knotted strap, an umbilical cord. When I grew up, I took care of my own purse, its pristine lining, never stretched or stuffed with a fetus. I waxed the buckles, polished the pink clit, the tender button that opened and closed my clutch. I carried pleasure inside me, my lips keeping so many secrets. I tipped my mother's empty purse upside down, its vulnerable silk insides torn. That was Denise Duhamel reading a new poem. Has this one been published? Not yet. No, no. Um, I'm working on a new book of elegies for my my mom who passed away in um, 2021. So this and I think the next poem I'll read to is going to be part of that that project. Oh, wonderful. It, oh, I shouldn't say that. It's not. I mean, it's not up yet, but it is going to be in an anthology of Gertrude Stein, like poets reacting to Gertrude Stein. So it'll be in that anthology, I think, in 2023. Oh, yeah. Well, so that, as I was saying, that's Denise Duham Duhamel reading two more purses. Uh, this is the Hive Poetry Collective. I'm Deanna O'Reilly. This is KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. This one, well, first off, I've always wondered if women wore purses and men didn't because they're like uteruses that we. Yes, right. When you think, when you really think about it, it makes so much sense. And men stick wallets in their back pockets. Uh, it, Don't think about it. You know, they just could, like be free. <laughs> and we're like always like, where do I put my purse? Don't lose your purse, you know? Yeah, it's 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 odd. Um, uh, this one has some really great sounds in it. I love the repetition of purse. You have purse, I don't know, at least three or four times in it. Uh, mm -hmm. But I love um, clit, lips, tipped um and let's see there were some other ones well fetus and purse and buckles yeah I closed my clutch there's some yeah, more buckles button and clutch I worked really hard on that one because I was like all those little views like I don't know buckles button clutch. I just was like short u sounds buckles button and clutch yeah. I remember when I used to teach high school English the kids used to say to me, are these writers doing this stuff on purpose? <laughs> and the answer is sometimes yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, sometimes what's really fascinating, you'll get like two, uh, like, I think I probably had buckles and clutch, but I didn't have button yet, you know? And then I was like, oh my God, tender buttons, that's Gertrude's time. You know, like if I see um, or hear like, a, you know, some alliteration or consonants being repeated, like I'll go in and revision and try to make them more, uh, bring them more to the surface. So sometimes it's a matter of just changing a word or adding something, right? So that the, the sound keeps it going. 
Yeah, it just makes it cl- it makes it just click into place. Correct. So, and I like um, <laughs> I like lips with secrets. Yeah, right. The S's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, secrets. Empty purse upside down. Vulnerable silk. The vulnerable silk insides torn is. There's a lot of uh, pathos to that of the mother being kind yeah. of used up. Um. Yeah. By being a mother. It was really torn. That's the thing, too. It was like I emptied it out and it, there was, you know, the lining inside was uh, just had like it had a it was a little rip in it. And I was like, oh, <laughs> like it just bothered me so much that she had this. I mean, it's ridiculous, but it it, it just it kind of symbolized her. Right. You know, carrying around all those kids and there's symbols everywhere. Yeah. They're and really- you never know what's as a poet what's going to kind of ignite you. Yeah, anything can. Um, I was recently doing a poetry reading, and someone asked, "What do you write about?" And my answer was lame. And I keep thinking, "Well, you can write about anything. It's really why write about it mm-hmm. is the question, uh, which is, and it's about." you the why is about you well it's because I must write and the why is about the world and the why is about the object you write about mm-hmm. it's not what because you wrote a poem about your father's hands you can write a poem about hands uh so yeah yeah you don't know what's gonna write you just don't know yeah you just don't know what's going to grab the imagination or what you remember oddly enough like the details you remember after you know it doesn't have to be a traumatic event but like I'd say like a an event worth remembering you know you remember these things and like it's not usually what color hair so you know someone had or whatever it's usually some really weird little detail yeah and we forget most things yeah that's so, why I have to write everything down when it happens, because otherwise forget it. And, I mean, the fact that we forget most things and we can't remember everything that happens to us, if anything sticks in our mind, there's probably a reason. Yeah, definitely. Right. Let me just read the first few lines here again, because I like them. Okay. When my mother passed, I emptied her white purse, tissue pack and reading glasses, coupons and address book. I once lived in the purse inside her, my first pink home, the knotted strap and umbilical cord. I just love that, you know, yeah, I once lived inside my mother and my mother once lived inside a mother. It's really, yeah, it's like uh, my sister was in the delivery room when her daughter gave birth and she said it was vaguely like science fiction <laughs> in a weird way. Like, oh, wait, that she made up, came out of me, but now she's a grown woman and she's, you know, uh, yeah, it's it's so remarkable in so many ways um, that we tend to just, I don't know, romanticize it or, you know, like it is, it is amazing. But like, again, as a poet, like new ways to kind of think about it. Yeah. Something out of nothing. But in this poem, what you do there when you say, I once lived in the purse inside her, boy, that's that's a turn. You know, <laughs> you really take it, you take it almost out to infinity right there. Yeah. You say that you start with just a purse and then all of a sudden, wow, you're in. Yeah, in the womb, right? 
Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. Okay, so let's now go to a story about your father uh, that you have, oh, in this first book that I love so much, that uh, my first book that I read by you, I don't know, when was this written in the 90s? No, no, this is 2013, actually. 2013? You oh, mean Blowout? Blow is out? Yeah, Blowout. Okay, it's just yeah. 20... Okay, so I guess I must have read it. <laughs> I know, time's like a soup. After after COVID, who knows what year anything was. <laughs> That's why I want to read your poem about memory, because mine's shut. <laughs> okay. But um, I must have read it when it first came out then. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it seems like a long time ago. And it's expired. So why don't you go ahead and read expired? Okie dokie. Okay. Expired. When my mother says, take something of your father's to remember him by, I take his black and silver D cufflinks and an albuterol inhaler, the kind that comes in a white plastic tube, the kind they don't make anymore. The code on my father's inhaler has expired, but I don't care. My father put his lips to it when he had trouble breathing. Albuterol didn't help my father, but I knew it would help me to put my mouth around it, to squeeze and breathe in something he might have breathed himself. The inhalers they make now are more echo-friendly, but the squirt of prevental isn't as forceful. I like the old albuterol, but it contained chlorofluorocarbons, so the manufacturer stopped making it. I am all for the environment, of course, since I'm asthmatic. Yet these new inhalers in their yellow canisters just don't have the oomph of the old ones. I am nostalgic, just like my dad, who talked about the farm where he milked cows in Canada. He never understood the appeal of skim milk, since that's what they used to give to the pigs. He liked heavy cream and whipped cream too. Now everyone agrees that skim milk is better for you than cream, that these new inhalers are better than the old. The velocity of the puff is slower, making it easier for the medication to penetrate the lungs. At least that's what my doctor said. But I missed that blast in the throat, that fast relief, the way I miss cream when I'm trying to diet. The doctor tells me that honest, the medicine in this new inhaler is the same, that it's just hard sometimes to get used to change. I am using my dad's inhaler until it runs out, until I absolutely have to say goodbye. That was Denise Duhamel reading Expired. This is Deanna O'Reilly. This is the Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. And that poem was from Blowout, which is primarily about your breakup, a breakup. It's about a divorce. Mm -hmm. And reading this for me back then, it gave me permission. Talk about writing about anything. Yeah, you can write about an albuterol inhaler. You can write about someone's hands. You can write about dust. Mm -hmm. You can write about salt. You can write about just about anything. But you can also write about really personal transgressive aspects of a relationship breaking up little details that people would not ordinarily publish. I 
that gave me a lot of permission to write about my family. And (laughs) I'm just wondering what gave you permission? Oh my goodness. I wrote all these poems um, while they were, you know, while I was going through my divorce, I wrote, I was just writing and writing same way when my mom died, I was, it was a long kind of drawn out death and I write my notebook, write my notebook. It's just like a way to, when you can't sleep, you know? So I had all this material. I wrote all these poems, but I never thought I would put them in a book. I thought they were just kind of, I don't know, for me maybe. Um, but then I was sending them out to magazines and I remember um, how it will end is a book is I think the first poem in the book and um, a friend calling me and I wrote that even before I knew I was getting divorced. I thought it was just a funny poem. It's kind of scary to look back. Like I thought it was oh, a funny poem about an argument, blah, blah, blah. She's like, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah. And she was like, it sounds not, you know, from this poem. And I was like, nah, it's nothing. And But of course she was absolutely right. So I think like little by little, um, when I put the book together, I had like maybe half of the poems because I was really nervous about being like labeled a shrew or, you know, what is that terrible cliche, like a woman scorned, you know, all that stuff. And I was like, oh, I'm just going to try to make light of it and maybe just move on. Um, but I have a friend, Stephanie Strickland, who helps me put my books together and I help her put her books together. And she was just like, go for it. You know, like this is not such an unusual situation. I mean, it's unusual in poetry, um, but, you know, so, like half of married people are going to go through something like this or you know you don't have to be married to go through a terrible breakup so it it, I think that gave me permission to just slowly slowly um I just went for it yeah having people tell you it's okay I think that's what it is and I mean it's so strange too because Sharon Ohl's book I don't know what year it came out but the stag which is all about her divorce and then um Sharon Doblin had a book called Whirlwind, which was all about her divorce. And it was almost kind of like all at the same time. So I think there was something in the zeitgeist of women going, you know what? Let's just do it. I I mean, I don't know. Like, I didn't know those poets were writing those books or anything like that. But there was something. I don't know. It was like before Me Too or anything like that. But I think that was like something rumbling that it was okay. Well, maybe it just hadn't, you know, we, we just keep writing about things that haven't been written about before. And I think that that's part of the reason why we're so hungry to read from, hear from people of color right now, because their experiences haven't been heard about before. And I guess right about that point, there just hadn't been that many women writing about divorce. Yeah. Which seems crazy when you look back, but like, you know, uh, Sylvia Plath or, you know, I mean, she did, but it was very metaphorical and very, you know, it was there, but it wasn't like, and then he said, you know what I mean? It was just kind of like lyrical. And um, I mean, Charnel's The Stag is completely narrative, um, you know, just tells it. And I think there's a certain power to that once you get over your fear. I mean, I, I to uh, beginning poets or even not beginning poets, I mean, you have to find your own comfortability with these things. So I'm not saying like, do it, do it. But if you feel compelled, to do it, it, I mean, the world will receive you. Yeah. If there's kind of a balance there, right. Because if you're doing something transgressive, mm-hmm. uh, talking about really personal things and 
just being transgressive is sort of a form of discovery because you're uncovering something that hasn't been said before, but you've got to handle the material. I mean, that's what Tony Hoagland, the mistake Tony Hoagland made, I think, in the change is he said something transgressive and racist, and then he just left it out there hanging. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He didn't say why maybe that's not a good way to think or a good thing to say. Like maybe there's more to be said about identifying with someone just because of your skin color. Okay, so that's a feeling you had. Fine, we all have feelings that we might not be proud of, but you can't just put it out there. You've got to say, well, maybe I need to think about this a little more and work with it. So there is a balance there between being transgressive and having that surprise and then actually working with the material a little bit. And also maybe self-aware. Like, I mean, I, I, you know, in, I tried at least, I don't know if I succeeded, but like, I tried to like, it, not be a victim in that book. You know what I mean? It's like, I, I was wronged, in quotes, but it wasn't like, oh, you know, I mean, um, yeah. I, I, I tried to look at your part. Yeah, I think so. And I tried to be funny in poems. I tried to, you know, like, like just if you can do different angles. I mean, I I was listening to the Mary Trump. I'm like obsessed with the Mary Trump podcast. And she talked, she she was like, if you are a white person who grew up 60s, 70s, 80s, you're racist. And like, you just have to admit, you know, I mean, we, I, if you asked me, I would say, of course I'm not racist, but everyone says, you know, like the, the most misogynist guy is like, but I love women, you know? So it's like, I have daughters, right? I have daughters, right? That's what they always say. Like, but I mean, it's that same. Um, I mean, if you, I think you, I, I think you can write about every anything really. If you have the examination, I, mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I think we're in a very fraught cultural moment. So I think a lot of people are feeling uh, afraid maybe to write about race or what, you know, especially race, I think, especially race, but um, who's that? But do you know who um, Benet Brown is? She's, uh, I mean, I'm embarrassed. She's kind of like an Oprah, like Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, Ted talky lady. She's from Texas. I've heard of her. She's great. And so she said, um, white people, she's white. And she said, if white people are afraid to talk about, well, first of all, we should be listening and yes, but if you want to say something about race or whatever, like don't use your white privilege to say silent, you know what I mean? Like stick up for people or, you know, not be the white savior, but you can say something like that's ridiculous. If someone tells a racist joke, you can be like, I don't appreciate it. Or, you know, just try yeah. at least try. That's not funny. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I think, well, what you do in second story is you have a poem called beholden where you yes. just talk about your experience as a white person. Um, right. I, this was so interesting because it, I wrote this during the, um, well, during the pandemic, but also, you know, with uh, the George Floyd protests and all this stuff. And I had this um, memory of my interaction with the police, which was, of course, nothing like 
Nothing a little like different. A little, a little different. different. A little different. But I you, also, could, you, yeah. you breathed. You breathed through the whole thing. Yeah, I'm still here. I mean, yeah. Like, yeah. All right. Should I read it? Yeah, why don't you go ahead? Okay. Beholden. That night, I ran into a tenement building, up to the second floor, then looked out a hall window where my friends were doing the duck walk to prove they weren't drunk. Jeff had thrown a book at a storefront window, setting off the alarm. We were obnoxious in that way college students can be, and I was woozy from the sake, which I gulped, not knowing it was supposed to be sipped. I was one of the boys that night, not quite a girlfriend, and quack, 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 we giggled later. The policemen shook their heads, no ticket, no brutality, no arrest. Later, the taxi driver said, we're here now, nudging my shoulder to wake me. I'd passed out on his back seat. When he opened my door, I gave him all the money I had, so happy I hadn't been raped. And because he was a nice human being, or maybe because he felt good about the tip, he caught me when I tripped and made sure I got to my door safely. Once inside, I blinked the outdoor light as a final goodbye and thank you again. Here's where I should mention my friends and I were all white. Hugh, earlier in the night, had said, watched out and grabbed me back to the curb, a bus speeding past, the driver giving me the finger. That was the poem Beholden from Denise Duhamel's book, Second Story. I'm Deanna Riley. This is the Hive Poetry Collective. This is KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. So I guess what you were saying before is that, sure, we all could call ourselves racist because we grew up with a certain amount of privilege. We're completely unaware of it. But when you write a poem like this, there's that moment of awareness where you become aware of your privilege. Absolutely. And it's really a double-edged sword being um, a woman, you know, a white woman. It's like, okay, you have all the privileges of being white, but you're still a woman, right? It's like you're kind of straddling, um, you know, yeah, privilege, not privilege. Um, so I think most of my career... <laughs> I, as a feminist, I really like honed in on the not privileged part, right? And also, I grew up very working class, oh, working poor, really. So I was like, I had blah, 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 you know, I was poor and I, blah, blah, but I was still white. You know what I mean? I still went to college and I still got out. Um, That's what that book, White Fragility, which my millennial yes. kids, my millennial kids hate that book, but whatever. It, I mean, I like it is about when people go, oh, you're racist, you go, well, no, I'm not. I'm poor. <laughs> yeah, right. No, exactly. I remember. This is so weird because this is about this is based on a real memory. Um, and I was in a class. I can't remember what the class was, but um, I did feel really, you know, Emerson. And then I went to Sarah Lawrence. So I was always the kid in the class. The You know, I was there in scholarship. Kids were going skiing for the weekend. I'm like, I can't go. I got to work or like I had no money, whatever. But I still got to go to these amazing schools, which I don't even know if kids can do now because the financial aid is not what it used to be. You know, so anyway, I remember talking to there was a Japanese guy 
and he was so cool. And um, he was talking about feeling really weird. And I'm like, oh yeah, I know. I grew up French Canadian and everyone made fun of my accent. And he's like, it's not the same, <laughs> you know, you're white. And I was like, ah, yeah, you're right. And then just like, I was like, yeah, you're right. But then I kind of forgot about it. Um, Cause I can walk around in my skin. Yeah. And if I keep my mouth shut, I have no accent. If I, you know, I guess he gives you a hint of an yeah. idea. But I do love this line. Um, <laughs> so happy I hadn't been raped. Yeah. I almost feel like that could be a, a, a line, like uh, a title or a book title. So happy I haven't been raped. Mm -hmm. I was constantly aware that at any, I mean, I've like living in Boston, living in New York. I mean, it's like a reality of women's lives. Um, if you think about it hard enough, though, maybe you have been. No, I have been, but just not in this poem. You know what I mean? Like I have, you know, I have. Oh, I see. Right? It's like I thought I hadn't been, but as you know from the poem that you read of mine, I yeah. feel like I had. Yeah, sometimes you can think you haven't been, and then you're like, oh, wait a minute. And that's kind of similar in a way as racism because rape has been redefined. Yeah. And we're redefining racism as something systemic. Right. It doesn't no. necessarily mean you're like uh, an oath keeper. You're just clueless. I mean, you yeah. know, like get a clue, get a clue, Denise. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. I, get a, I have my clue now. Like, I mean, it's not that I ever, you know, was in an organization or anything horrible I was just yeah you're just a cog in a system that yeah. I mean as a school teacher as a high school teacher I was part of a system that was so racist mm -hmm. in the way that students were chosen to be in the elite program that I taught mm. and all that and it was not until really after I retired that I realized that. Of course. Uh, you just, yeah, anyway. Right, you're just trying to make a living, just trying to get through the day, feed your kids, blah, 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 you know. It's right, be a good teacher. I was trying to be a good teacher. Sure. But, you know, you do things without thinking. Like, I keep thinking about this, that I had this game I played called O'Reilly Ball, and I divided the uh -huh. class into boys and girls, and they threw the ball, the boys threw to a ball, the ball to another boy. And then I would ask a question and they had to answer it. And it was all game and um, based on dividing the class by boys and girls. And then years later, some of the people in the class came out as trans. And I was thinking, oh my God, every time I played that game, I forced someone who felt like they were a girl to identify as a boy. And I, I think about that. And I'm like, Wow, you know, it's just yeah, know, you know. Of course you did. Yeah, yeah. I know it's fascinating. It's really fascinating. It it really is. Why don't we read another short one uh, from your newest book, Second Story, called Life? Perfect. I will. Okay, this is called Life with apologies to check off. In this story, the gun doesn't go off. The sun melts the pistol into a vase, the intact barrel becoming a lip to hold flowers, the unmurdered kiss, their clothes sliding to the floor, their orgasms proof of a feminine ending. Okay, 
That was Denise Duhamel reading Life with Apologies to Chekhov from her book, Second Story. So I guess we should kind of explain in case people don't know. Do you want to explain about Chekhov's gun? Yeah, so Chekhov famously said, if there's a gun in a scene in a novel, it's got to go off. Otherwise, why is it there, right? So this was, again, strangely, I mean, I think just responding to gun violence. And I, I felt like, you know, gun violence that we have right now. So this idea, like, I know we have so many guns in America, but this idea that uh, the gun doesn't go off. You know, you just have this gun and you melt it down, turn it into a flower vase, and then there's just love. You know, this the unmurdered kiss, their clothes sliding to the floor, their orgasms proof of a feminine ending. And the feminine ending is sort of a poetry joke, right? Because there's masculine ending. Oh, I don't even know if you say that anymore. Actually, I don't think so. No. I think, I think they have another word for it now, but I don't know what it is because I learned a masculine ending. Do I yeah, so it was like explain what that is? Wasn't a feminine ending if it ended on an unstressed syllable, but a masculine, it was like boing, you know, like book or whatever. You know, you'd end on a, a stress syllable, right? You'd end the line. The really stress. famous one is to be or not to be, that is the quest. Fun. Fun. Yeah. So quest is the masculine. Yeah, but it ends on shun. So the whole thing's iambic pentameter, except for the line where it's, so it's quest. Yeah, the masculine, right, exactly. Yeah. And I always thought that was really bizarre anyway. But again, like when we were in college, it's like, oh, okay. You know, I didn't think of it as anything. No, somehow. I mean, I probably did, but I complained, but. Just in my head. Does this have a feminine ending? Their orgasms proof of a feminine ending. Yes, it does. Yeah, I put in a, yeah, what was used to be considered a feminine ending. Well, this is kind of an imagined poem. I'm much like Mm -hmm. your, uh, what was it called? The one, the one about the Dobbs decision. Yeah, right. Just taking an idea and running with it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's kind of, yeah. So imagine a world where guns just melt into something nice, yeah. like an orgasm. Yeah. yeah, there you go. I mean, I, I, I remember when I was a little girl, there was uh, during the Vietnam War, it wasn't, I think it was the Vietnam War, it was like uh, people had in ads or maybe it was, you know, like rifles, but with flowers in them. Do you remember that? That was a famous poster. Yeah, I remember that. I think my cousin, my cool cousin had that poster and I was like, I was obsessed with it. Yeah, I mean, it's just so lovely. The unmurdered kiss, their clothes sliding to the floor, their orgasms proof of a feminine ending. Yeah, it'd be so nice if instead of people being murdered, it's make love, not war, basically. It's basically that. Yeah, the updated version. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, let's see. Um why don't we go and or a little earlier in your book, you have an elegy to your father called Poker Hands. Do you want to go yes. ahead and read Poker Hands? Sure, I would love to. Okay, so this is an, another elegy um, for my dad. And here we go. Poker Hands. 
The day you left us, you almost forgot to wave goodbye as you followed the anesthesiologist into the operating room, scuffing along in non-skid slipper socks, one of those surgical caps on your head. You were going to a sterile and cold place when mom said, wait a minute, what about my kiss? You came back and then turned and waved goodbye with both hands, hands that could pull out pies from the oven without potholders, hands that could shovel and make snowballs without gloves. All those years of baking from the freezer to the proof rack to the ovens made your hands what they were. Your poker hands, which dealt the cards for pitch and 21. You were serious when you played, tapping the table so we'd pay attention. You had nicks and cuts and burns you shrugged off, just like you shrugged off the surgery. We were so sure you would come around, sore, yes, depressed, maybe. We'd read up on all the side effects of the procedure, but you were fearless, ready, man of Bayer and Vicks, the only medicines you really believed in. I know it's too late, but I'm sorry I was a jerk so much of the time. I'm sorry I was such a spoiled brat. You only bought one luxury your whole life, a leather lounge chair, while I wanted a guitar, a new coat like the other girls, brand name jeans, a bike, and money for the movies. I grabbed everything with my weak hands that turn blue in a cold room, ricochet when the faucet runs too hot, hands that get chapped doing simple things like dishes. Now that you are no longer here, sometimes my hands are your hands when they are empty and still and grateful. When I fold them to pray the way you did, when I helped someone like you helped me the morning I woke up with a hangover after a high school party. You poured me a glass of orange juice and plucked a pickle from the jar and put it on a saucer. The combination worked, our very own father and daughter dance. Soon after we went to the airport so I could board my first plane to travel farther than you or mom had ever been. I stooped having second thoughts, my paisley suitcase suddenly too heavy. Mom told me we could turn around, that I could stay home, and you told mom, honey, you've got to let her go. After the agent took my ticket, I turned and waved, my pudgy fingers, my purple polish already starting to chip. Then I followed the other travelers to the rest of my life, scuffling along in my sneakers, one of your baseball caps on my head. That was Denise Duhamel reading Second Story, her newest book from Pitt Press. I'm Deanna Riley. This is the Hive Poetry Collective. This is KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. You know, writing about a parent's hands is a great prompt. It is. It is. I think I, yes, do it. <laughs> if you're listening and you want, I do it. I think it's, why do not? It. Do it. Um, so this is an elegy, of course, and there's a, it's kind of a pure, there's a purity to it because it really is pure love for this father expressed. Mm -hmm. If there are any foibles expressed, it is the speakers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, in Second Story, one of the um, ideas behind the title, there were so many poems about, quote unquote, bad men, right? In this book, like, you know, the 
politicians, let's just say, or, you know, people who robbed me or what, you know, just like the second story man is like someone that comes in and robs your house. Um, but then there's also the second story is that, you know, I had, the, I was really lucky. I had a cool dad. Like how many poets get to say that? Or how many people get to say that? Yeah. You know? yeah. So I'm really lucky in that way. And I think it's about class too. You know, my dad was very, he was a baker and like, didn't go to, I don't, I think he went to his, he might've gone to seventh grade and then just had to quit and work for the family and all that, you know? And I was like, oh, I'm going to be a writer. And he was just thought like, my goodness, what is wrong with you? You know what I mean? I was so ambitious and it must've been such a different, now that I'm older, I can see how weird that must've been. But he never said anything. He no, always... supportive completely. Wow. Oh, that, that's amazing to me. Yeah, it is. I know. I know. I feel almost guilty saying it because I know so many people don't have that. Now that you are no longer here, sometimes my hands are your hands when they are empty and still and grateful. When I fold them to pray the way you did, when I help someone like you helped me the morning, etc. I mean, it really just shows how there's generational goodness mm -hmm. passed down. Yeah. Right. I mean, I mean, I'm not anywhere as like pure or good. My father's really religious, really like, you know, prayed at, like he would kneel. I mean, in the seventies, he knelt by the side of the bed. I mean, it was really like he, I remember him telling me like, I'd be really mad at someone and he's like, they did the best they could or they did what was right at the time. And I was like, ah! and now I really try to practice that. You know, I really try to say, okay, that's very odd. I do not like it they must have a reason, <laughs> you know, like I try. That kind of generosity is such a gift. It is so much better to go through life just thinking the best of people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Okay, I love this. Um, yeah, a certain purity to it. And they, I mean, the opening lines have so much pathos in them. The day you left us, you almost forgot to wave goodbye. I mean, you set it up right at the start. The poem is like what, what we call another one of these sexist terms, a muscular poem. It really moves. The tone. <laughs> it, moves it moves all over the place. It ends up, um, it ends up with an image, but it ends up in the past. But it's moving all over the place. Yeah, really. I, that's what, you know, one of my favorite things about poetry is that. Is the memory the, field. Oh, yeah. And be able to go back and forth and come, you know, like let the images take you where they will. And, and you know, I always think if you write a sentence or, you know, you're writing a poem and then suddenly something jumps in that doesn't seem like it belongs, just keep going because it's very possible that that image really does belong. You just have to keep at it you know yeah it's sort of like when you're painting and you like put a big blob of color on like you don't have to take it off you just need to balance it somehow or make yes. it in, in the painting right? yeah yeah. I, yeah and that's one of the hardest things to do I think is those leaps through time and into different modes of thought right because you have to keep the reader with you enough I mean I think readers are usually fairly open well poetry readers you know they'll they will like my dad give you the benefit of the doubt <laughs> that you're going to take them somewhere but you can't just bring them to a field and drop them and forget about them you have to you know constantly like, bring your reader along so that they're not 
like completely confused. Lost. Yeah. Different readers have a different tolerance for yeah kind of jumping around. But I think we all kind of like it because that's what our thoughts do. Mm-hmm. You'll be thinking about one thing. It will remind you of something else. You look at something and it reminds you of something else. And Sharon Olds does this all the time at the beginning of her poem. She'll say something like, when I look at the Xerox machine, right. I think about my sister. <laughs> right. Well, and yeah, and that goes to painting too, because I remember taking an art class in well, in college. I must have been in college a long time ago. And it was like, if you put any two objects together in a painting, you're, the viewer will create a narrative, whether they say it aloud or not. You know, like teapot, uh, you know, tree trunk, you can do it. But I mean, in poetry, you kind of have to give a little more connective tissue sometimes, but- When you say teapot and tree trunk, I think Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, there you go. See, we're going to make a narrative no matter what yeah. to think, right? Yeah. yeah. So you teach quite a bit too. I do. What do you feel, well, you probably teach different levels of students, but in general, what do you want to get across to students that is very hard for them to get to comprehend i start every class just saying it's okay to write a dog i said i actually prefer if you write a poem that is so horrible that you can't even you know you're just gonna throw it in a drawer i give them one of those because i think what happens to poem especially in a workshop i mostly teach workshop classes and I try not to do like poetry by committee because I realize that's the safest way. Like, oh, I didn't, I didn't like the dog. Oh, change it to a cat, change it to a bear, whatever. You know, that's a bad example, but I'm trying to think of like change a word here and there. And it's like, no, no, it's, it, we can do that. We can go like micro, but like to think of just take chances because you don't, unless you take chances, you don't know what you're capable of. So that's why I let them write the dog. And they usually don't write a dog. They don't because, but but just knowing that I'm not going to give them an F if they write a terrible poem, they'll take more chances because I think in college, the graduate students are much more, you know, out there, but in undergrad, they just want to get a good grade. They want to please the teacher. They want, you know, to write something that everyone like claps at the end. You know, it's like, you got to, so that's one thing, like just take so you a lot give of- them permission. So permission is your permission, thing. permission, permission, permission. And they don't have that in most of their, you know, you can't really do that in a biology class. Like, yeah, who cares if you have the body parts in the wrong place? I mean, it's like, but in poetry, it doesn't matter so much. Just, just loosen up, just loosen yeah. up, just let her yeah. rip, let her and, rip. and read as much as you can. That's my other piece of advice because you never know which poet is going to excite you. And the poets that excite me may not excite. My students, I mean, I teach a lot of poetry, but who knows, you know, who knows which poet that will give them the permission they need. Who's exciting you right now? Me? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I just bought this. Oh, I guess I wanted to show you because it's, but, and Roger Reeves has a new book. Um, it's really good. It's called Best Barbarian. Best Fabulous. Barbarian. Oh. It's really, really good. Um, I'm a big fan of, um, Matthew Olsman. Oh yeah. Really funny and really smart. Um, my, well, she's my colleague, but I'll still, you know, I really love Julie Marie Wade's poetry. Um, really 
stellar. Um, I have a, an alum from FIU, a student um, named Ashley Jones. She's so good. She is the first female black poet laureate of Alabama. Oh, and she yeah. she's just amazing. I mean, she's really good. Like she, I, I take credit for her, but not, I can't really, because she's one of those students that came fully formed. She came to the MFA program and I just kept saying more, more like, you know, I'd be like change a word here or there, but she was like from the get go, just brilliant, completely brilliant. You know, I've been thinking this and saying this a lot lately, but I feel like there's kind of two big parts of teaching. And one part is craft, like, okay, work on your line breaks and check your adjectives and your verbs and all that. Um, but the other is permission. Just write, write. You can do it. You can do it. You yes. Do it. Yes. Don't give it's up. Like, and writing a bad poem or if I say if the I or the class suggests taking out a stanza, so what? You can write another stanza. You know what I mean? Like to just. Or um, don't take it out. I mean, that's another. Or don't take it out. Whatever. It's your poem. I say that so often now because. I do think there's um, this prescriptive, like, oh, three people in the class like this, but four people in the class like this better. And it's like, no, 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 that's not how we were going to write a poem. We don't write a poem. So I was saying earlier, like writing a poem by committee, like you have to develop your own voice yeah. and yeah. strategies because you won't be in my class forever. You got to go out there and mm -hmm. keep on writing. Mm. Well, we've got about a minute here. Oh, you also judge contests. I so heard it. when you're judging a contest, how do you evaluate it? What, what is it you're looking for? I'm really open. So I don't even know what I'm looking for until I see it, which sounds really bizarre, but it's true. I'm open to, well, I'm open usually if it's a um, contest and you get, you know, 20 or 30 poems or worse, 20 or 30 manuscripts, like clarity and surprise clarity and surprise. Like, I think there are so many really wonderful, technically, like, poems that you can't fight with technically, you know, you know, perfect sonnet, whatever, but that they don't really say anything. They're practice. I mean, they're really, you know, obviously someone has a talent, but then if there's something really surprising, it doesn't even have to be the narrative, but surprising a surprising narrative, I have to say, makes me happy. But like um, even any kind of surprising language or anything that um, is the opposite of what I think is going to happen in the poem, that really excites me a lot. I, I heard somewhere recently that every time you're surprised, you learn something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agree. I guess you're, I guess you could be described as a surprising narrative poet. Thank you. <laughs> I'll take it. Thanks. <laughs> Well, it was so wonderful talking to you today, Denise Buhamel. Thank you for coming on The Hive. I hope that you come to the Bay Area sometime. Maybe you could even read in one of the Hive reading series when your next book comes out, given enough notice. I just want to tell our audience that we do have readings uh, every other month. Go to thehivepoetry.org to our events page to find out about them. This is KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. This is Deanna Riley. This is the Hive Poetry Collective. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's been so great.